Easter season series on the death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus. We've got this passage uh, written by Luke where we've seen what Jesus did at the end of his life and in his resurrection, but it shows what happens after. We'll be reading the first 11 verses. This is God's Word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we believe in the work of your Son. We believe in your Holy Spirit. We believe in the power of your word. Father, we pray that you would make all of those work together in harmony in our hearts, that we would be opened more and more to the glory of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I've been thinking a little bit about graduation as that season's coming up. I'll have the high school graduates up here at some point to celebrate them. But, but the thing with graduation is you can offer all kinds of advice and insight to someone who's about to graduate, be it from high school or college. You can tell them, here's what to expect. Here's what you need to be looking for. Here's what you need to do. Here's what it's going to be like. But they can't really understand that until they go through the process. And there's all these kinds of life transitions where that's true, where it can be a little scary. It's not exactly sure what's going to happen next. It can be a, a little bit... Uh, off-putting, but if you've gone through it, you know that it is a good thing, that there are good things on the other side of that transition. We have a transition here in this passage where the Lord Jesus ascends into heaven. And for the disciples, I'm sure it was a little scary. There's unknown things happening before this. This man they've been following around who's been doing magnificent work for many years now, He's leaving them. 
And they don't know what to expect, but the Lord knows that this is good, and it is for their good. And we see that, that just as Jesus has been acting through his ministry on earth, he is going to continue to act through his work, through his spirit, and through his people. And so we see that the, the ascension of Christ empowers his people to be witnesses. The, the ascension of Jesus empowers his people to be witnesses. When he empowers them in a number of different ways, it, it connects them to the ministry that he has done. It promises them his Holy Spirit. It focuses them on his mission, and it points them to his kingdom, his ministry, his Holy Spirit, his mission, and his kingdom. First, we see that, that, that his ascension connects them to his ministry. See, Luke is the only gospel writer, the only New Testament author to describe what actually happened in the ascension. Other authors reference it, but, but he talks about here's what actually went down. And he connects it, he connects this book of Acts to the gospel that he wrote. He says in the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is this is the this is sequel. This is not like a standalone. This is in a different story. This is the same story that's happening. That was just part one, and this is part two. He's unifying these two books. And notice he says that, that he talked about what, what Jesus began to do and teach. The whole gospel of Luke talks about what Jesus began to do and to teach. The idea is that, that what, what I'm about to write is, is going to be the continuation of what Jesus did and taught. It's not a different thing. It's not something standalone. These two are connected. It's kind of like the Fast and the Furious movies. You maybe saw the first one, you're like, oh, it's just some angry guys driving fast. Like, that's the chick. But then they came out with another one and another one and another one. They're up to nine, and they've got a tenth one coming out. And you realize it's not just some angry guys driving fast. It's the same angry guys driving fast over and over and over again. They're all connected. Apparently, they get better. I don't know. But we see this connection between what Jesus has done and what the, the apostles, what the disciples, what his followers are going to do. We see these little echoes between Jesus' ministry and theirs. We see that there's this 40-day period after he's raised, but before he ascends, there's these 40 days, which is a, a number that's repeated over and over again in Scripture, but was repeated at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he went into the wilderness for 40 days to begin to prepare for the ministry that he was going to do. We see this reference to John and that he baptized with water, but that connection to the baptism that these disciples are about to receive of the Holy Spirit before they begin their ministry, just as Jesus was baptized before he began his. And we see that the Holy Spirit, just as he descended on Jesus at his baptism, will descend on the apostles Descend on these disciples as they go out to continue the work that Jesus has done. This is, this is just referencing and tying back. Luke is saying this is not a new thing. This is not a different thing. This is the same thing that God has been doing. You cannot understand all that the apostles do, all that God's people are doing in the book of Acts, if you don't understand what Jesus did. 
It's like seeing a caboose on the train tracks just by itself. You might be first like, that's cool, I guess, but what, what is happening here? It's just sitting there. There's nothing happening. It's not going anywhere. It doesn't make any sense without the engine pulling it along. So, too, we see that what Jesus did in the Gospel of Luke empowers what the apostles are going to do in the book of Acts. Jesus is the main character of Luke. No one's denying that. But Jesus is also the main character of Acts. All that they do, all that they are going to endure, all the goals that they are pursuing are those of Jesus. He is the one working out his ministry, continuing it through his apostles. Sometimes we can grow cold to the story of Jesus. Or we can grow cold to the story of the apostles. Or really the whole of Scripture be like, that just happened so long ago, and I don't see any way that that connects to me. But we need to to cultivate, to recognize that that what God began in the Garden of Eden, that that what he continued through his people, through Noah, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, through the, the nation of Israel and David and all the prophets, and even into Jesus' ministry and the apostles, has continued throughout history to us. We are part of this long legacy of the work of Jesus that is still ongoing. And Jesus, at his ascension, reminds his people that you are doing my work. You are continuing my ministry. And he empowers them to go and be witnesses. He does that in part by promising them his Holy Spirit. John, he says, baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. There's a similar thing going on here. They're both preparing for this ministry that's about to take place. John was, was baptizing Jesus as a symbol as a, of this washing, this cleansing of the work that Jesus was going to do in and through the nation of Israel. The Holy Spirit, however, isn't washing the disciples here at Pentecost. He is in, indwelling them. He is inhabiting them. He is empowering them. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And in the end of the Gospel of Luke, the the way he describes it, he says, you will be clothed with power from on high. You look at someone's clothes and you can sort of identify them. He's like, you will be identified. You will be wrapped up and you will be consumed with this power from on high. And it is power, not in a, in a civil sense, not in a worldly sense, like they're going to become kings on earth, but it is a power to renew because it comes from on high. It is a power to reveal the majesty of God and to work out his power in the lives of people. This has always been the plan. And in Isaiah, it says that until the Spirit is poured upon us, that is God's people, from on high... And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. You see this renewal, this this new life. The idea is you look out and you see this desert land, like absolutely barren, and there's nothing there. And you look away for a second, like, oh, there's some things growing there. There's some plants. And you look away for a second, and it's like, there's an entire forest, this magnificent, explosive, powerful work of growth. That is what the Spirit is going to do in his church and in his people. And Jesus says, it will happen soon. 
Not many days from now. If you do the math, it's about 10 days from when he says this. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon them. And again, it might be tempting to look at this and see this new thing, this, this crazy thing, the Holy Spirit coming upon the people of God. But it's, it's not new. It's not disjointed, this ministry. Because we see back in verse 2 that Jesus had been teaching through the Holy Spirit. It's not that the Holy Spirit was waiting on the sideline until Jesus ended saying, put me in, coach, put me in, coach. The Holy Spirit was there. The the members of the Trinity have been cooperating eternally to do their work throughout history. Just as Jesus did teach through the Holy Spirit, he is continuing to act and to teach through the Holy Spirit, which now dwells in his apostles. Sometimes we can downplay the importance of the Spirit. Do we actually believe that that the third member of the Trinity lives inside of us? That he offers us power, not, not on the terms that we maybe want power, but that he gives us power to live faithfully. And what would it look like if we did believe that? Maybe it looks like walking humbly, saying, God, I think I need this, but you know what I need. And to listen. And when he calls you to do something that, that, that goes against your desires, to listen, knowing that he will be there to empower you. Maybe it looks like prayer, much more prayer. Not that we're never not praying, but that we're always looking to pray, knowing that God alone can give us the power that we need. So Jesus connects them to his ministry, and he promised them his Holy Spirit, but then he focuses these apostles on his mission. And, and they do need a little bit of focus. You read here that they ask him, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And this, this word for ask has this idea that like they're repeatedly questioning him. It's like a bunch of reporters surrounding Jesus like, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel right now? They're all pressing him because this is at the forefront of their mind. You see, they still didn't fully get completely what Jesus was working towards, what Jesus was trying to accomplish. They didn't fully understand his purposes because if they did, they would realize that, that yes, the Lord will restore the kingdom to Israel, but Israel is far too a restrictive a vision of what he is trying to accomplish. God's plan is, is much grander, is much bigger than they could ever hope to understand. He says that you will receive power from the Holy, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, this holy city of God, but also in all Judea, which is the surrounding area. Okay, God, that makes sense. But then to Samaria, Samaria, where the Samaritans live, and then to the ends of the earth. God's vision is, is much grander, much far beyond what we would hope even sometimes. Again, this is nothing new. God says in the prophet, through the prophet Isaiah, I will make you, talking about his people, I will make you as a light for the nations, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 
And so Jesus gently corrects them. He says, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, he, he, he says it's not necessary for your faithfulness to know exactly what God is doing. God has fixed it by his own authority. There are times and seasons planned, but you don't need to know that in order to walk out faithfully what he has asked us to do. Often we think, if, if I just knew, God, what was going to happen, what you had for me, then I could do it, then I could plan for it well. But if we did know, a lot of times we would be terrified, or we would be very concerned, and we would have some very critical thoughts about what God has planned for us. Sometimes not knowing is part of the process, where God shapes us to be patient, to be steadfast, to be humble. God is making us new, and that's not an instantaneous process. So we cannot know all things, even if we desire to. When Elizabeth and I were engaged, we lived 411 miles apart. I know this because I drove that two times a month for about a year. And so when we're wedding planning, we're going to get married in South Carolina, and she was living in Northern Virginia. And if you ever tried to wedding plan in the same city in which you live, it's difficult. <laughs> Try doing it 400 miles apart. And so we found this one venue that would do everything. They had a DJ, they had food, they had the venue, they had, they had the sound system. Um, they, they could have provided music if we wanted to do that. They could have provided a photographer if we wanted to do that. They did everything. And so Elizabeth said, here's, here's what we want. Like we laid out all our choices and they said, okay, we got it. And then we didn't hear from them for months, <laughs> months. And we're like, oh, it's, it's getting close. And then about a month out, they said, okay, we're working on it. And a couple of weeks out, I was like, here's the details. And we showed up on the day and it was beautiful and it was wonderful and everything worked out and it was awesome. But that required a great deal of trust. We didn't know what was going on. So too, God is calling us, I've got this. I know what is happening. I know the mission I am trying to accomplish, and I will handle it. And so he says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. This is it. This is the mission. A witness is someone who, who both observes something happening, but then also goes and recounts that somewhere. You have to see it, but you also have to recount it. It's part of why he appeared to them with many proofs. They were not initially convinced about this whole resurrection thing because, as we heard last week, it is ridiculous. It's absurd. And so they had to be convinced, but they were, and so that they could go and be witnesses. Again, this is nothing new. We saw in the call to worship that God says, you are my witnesses. You are my witnesses. Fear not or be afraid. For I have, not told, have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. To be a witness we're not saving anyone. We are not accomplishing anything in the hearts of man. But we are pointing to the one who does save, 
We are pointing to the one who can work in man's hearts. This is our whole following after Christ. Our whole discipleship, our whole walk is, is just that. It's a, it's a following after, a response to who Jesus is and to what he has done. As such, the Holy Spirit is essential in this. We read in Paul that he's like, I'm not a good public speaker. <laughs> I'm not good at it. But he has the Holy Spirit. And part of the reason the Holy Spirit is essential is because being a good witness requires walking as a good witness. With this new life that, that points to the truth of what Jesus has done. Not, not perfection, but even in the, the times when we sin, we can point and say, I don't have it together, but I'll tell you about the one who does. Sometimes we confess the truth, but we're not consistent about it. We add our own beliefs, our own practices, doctrines that we think are, are, are incredibly important or our own cultural preferences to what is required for salvation. Or, or maybe not even what's required to salvation, but what's required to know that you're saved. What is required is to have seen Jesus and to trust in him and to recount that. And there are many distractions. You see these two men in white robes that show up. They're angels. It matches the description of these men who showed up after Jesus' resurrection. And, and they almost have to like refocus the disciples. They're, Jesus is ascended and they're just standing and looking there. And the angels come along and go, like, hey guys, hey guys, guys, remember? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. It's not that, that Christ's departure is, is, is something you shouldn't care about at all, but, but they're sitting there staring. He's like, guys, he's coming back. He's coming back in the same way. But you have a mission that he has called you to. And there is no difference in that mission. There is no difference in that purpose between you and me, the apostles. They saw the work of Jesus on earth. They witnessed it, and they went and told the nations. We see the work of Jesus through his spirit, in his church, in his people, and we go and tell the nations about it. We are doing the same thing. But to be a witness requires having witnessed something. You have to have seen it. Have you seen the Lord's work in your heart? Have you seen the Lord's work in his people? Have you seen the Spirit working out the salvation of Jesus in your life and those around you? And what are you doing with that information? Are you going and sharing it? We are repeatedly pointing not to ourselves, not to how we have it together, but to Jesus, to his redemption. And we are supposed to live it out as if it is true. And so he gives his apostles, his disciples, his mission, but then he also points them to his kingdom. And they get a sense of this. In verse 6, when they're asking him about the restoration of Israel, they call him Lord, which we kind of gloss over because they do it a bunch. But this is kind of crazy in Israel. That word Lord 
refers exclusively in the Old Testament to Yahweh, the true God. And so they understand a little bit what's going on here. But we see that he taught them speaking about the kingdom of God. This word kingdom of God is, is Luke's kind of shorthand for what God was doing throughout redemptive history. One scholar described it as God's rule in the hearts and lives of his people. God's rule in the hearts and lives of his people is the kingdom of God. And so it's not just where people declare the name of Jesus, but it's where they practice, they live out what he has called his people to, where his reign is is manifested in their lives. That is where the kingdom of God is present. So we can rightfully say that the kingdom of God is at work. The kingdom of God is moving when we fight injustice and darkness, when we praise his name and glorify him, and when we love others, we can say that the kingdom of God is at work. And so this is the background for them as he actually ascends, as he is lifted up this phrase, lifted up, isn't, isn't meant to give us like a, a geography for where heaven is. It's not that heaven is up. We just have to get the right altitude and then we can find it. This is pointing to the transcendence of what is happening, to the, to the majesty and the glory of where God is taking Jesus to heaven to sit at his right hand. It's why Peter, just a few chapters later, can confess that when God promised To David, in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He can say, that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who has been exalted at the right hand of God. That's why we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. And it seems kind of weird that this ascension is good news. It's kind of like when I broke my arm. I was in college, and I, it was a really nasty break, you know, right angles and kind of stuff. I have a picture, but I chose not to put it on the slideshow. But when, when they set your arm, they put your fingers in these, like, finger trap things, and they, like, pull it out a little bit, and then they line it up and put it in place. And if you're wincing a little bit at that, that's the right reaction, right? It was painful. I did not enjoy it. But it was necessary for that alignment to get right and for my long-term health and benefit that it would be fixed. So too, this this separation of Jesus is for our long-term benefit. The separation where he bodily departs from the earth is for our good. But how? Why? Why? Why is it good that Christ has ascended? There's a couple of reasons. Because Christ has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, we can be encouraged that he is representing us. He is representing us. We saw a little bit earlier in Hebrews 10, but also in Hebrews 8, it says, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Just as the priest in the Old Testament represented Israel before God, We have a great high priest who is sitting at the right hand, the place of power next to the majesty of heaven. And he is our priest 
our great high priest. Because he has ascended to the right hand of God, it allows him to plead and intercede for us. As Paul says in Romans 8, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if you're thinking about God, and you're thinking about what, what you hope from him, you're thinking about how you can't approach to him, Jesus is there. Jesus is interceding for you. You don't have to know what's right. You don't have to have the perfect thoughts, the perfect words, the perfect intentions even. Jesus is interceding for you at the right hand of God the Father. Because he's ascended, he is enthroned. And this has implications for the end of days. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Then comes the end when he, that is Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And that's bad news if you're an enemy of God. But if you are the one that he calls friend, if you are one of the ones that he is interceding for, this is good news because every evil, every injustice, every wrong that has ever been committed is going to be destroyed because he sits in the seat of power at the right hand of God, the Father. That Jesus has ascended is good news because we too will join him one day. In John chapter 14, as he's talking to his apostles, approaching his crucifixion, he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He has ascended there, and he wants to bring us to himself. And so Christ's departure is meant to be a comfort, as weird as it sounds. Christ's bodily departure from earth, where he left us physically, is meant to be a comfort because though he is physically gone, he is spiritually present. He has not abandoned us. He is steadfast, just as he has been throughout history, just as he was here on earth. He is steadfastly with and for his people. And so we should have confidence that we know the King the one who is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. We know him. And yes, that means that we should live in a certain way, but also we can have confidence because the one who promises things for our good is in the position to accomplish it. These two men in white robes that show up as they're trying to refocus the disciples to what Jesus is asked them and called them to do, they say that he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It was unexpected. It was majestic. It was on the clouds of glory. It was not symbolic, though. It was real, and it was physical, and it was powerful. And in all the same ways, Jesus will return. It will be unexpected and majestic. It will be on the clouds. It will not be purely symbolic, but it will be real and physical and powerful. And if you have studied Scripture, you know that that sounds a lot like the words that Daniel used to describe 
the vision that he saw. In chapter 7, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, the word that Jesus, phrases that Jesus used to describe himself over again and over again. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that is, God, and was presented before him. And to him, that is, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. That is the one who is our intercessor. That is the one who we can look to in hope and faith and trust, knowing that he loves us and he wants our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, the one who is now sitting at your right hand. We thank you for his deep, abiding, steadfast love for his people. Throughout his time here on earth and through the outworking of his ministry via your Spirit and his disciples, even unto us today, Father, we look to him. We hope in him. We trust in him. And in your kingdom, one that is everlasting, that shall not pass away, that shall not be destroyed. Help us to live in light of these truths. Help us to look to the one who ascended to heaven. We pray this in his name. Amen.